Hello and welcome to this episode of the Beartown Road Alliance Church Podcast. My name is Pastor Isaac and I'm really looking forward to today's message because we are going into episode three of our series leading us through Easter titled Journey to the Cross. Well, in Mark 11, Jesus actually curses a fig tree and then he curses the temple itself, leaving people astonished and confused. So the question we ask is how did Jesus's contemporaries view this and how does it apply today? And so Pastor Dave is going to look at this passage and explain. However, we're also issuing a warning that this sermon contains cursing. And hey, we're really glad that you chose to join us. If you would like to know anything that's going on as we round out the tail end of our winter season and we move into the spring, you can go to beartownroad.org slash events to find all that information. So without further ado, let's jump in on this episode of the podcast titled Jesus and the Temple of Doom. I just got to give you a warning that today's sermon will contain cursing. I've never seen you look that nervous in my life up here. Um, all right, curse number one. Curse number one. 1945, a man by the name of William Sienis, he was a Greek immigrant. He moved to the south side of Chicago, and uh, he started a tavern called the Billy Goat Tavern. So this sermon will contain cursing and liquor. So there you go. So he has this, this tavern called the Billy Goat Tavern. He's a huge Chicago Cubs fan. And in 1945, game four of the World Series, the Cubs versus the Tigers, he decides to buy two tickets for $7.50, one for himself and the other for his pet Billy Goat. Now, if you're a Cubs fan, there are multiple versions of this story online. I'm simply going to give you the most entertaining one. So he gets these two tickets heads into Wrigley Field, and goes into the outfield grass where his goat is grazing along the lawn, and then the game's about to start, and he takes his little goat, and he heads back to his seat, and they're just kind of enjoying the game. He's eating some popcorn. He's feeding his goat some goat cheese and goat milk and stuff, and um, I made that part up. And then all the people around them are starting to get a little bit upset because the goat smells bad. So they talk to the ushers and they say, hey, can you please get this guy's goat out of here? Why did you let him in here in the first place? So they kick this man out of his seats. They kick him out of the stadium. And on his way out, legend says that he cast a curse on the Chicago Cubs. And he said something like, them Chicago Cubs are never going to win a World Series ever again. Right? And they had won their previous World Series in 1908. And many people believe that this was true because... Year after year, they had struggles. They came close to winning a World Series and never happened until 2016 when they finally broke the Billy Goat curse and won the World Series. So that's curse number one. Curse number two, C.S. Lewis wrote a series of books called The Chronicles of Narnia. And in one of his books called The Lion and the Witch in the Wardrobe, the enemy in that story is someone known as the White Witch. And she casts a curse upon Narnia, and the curse is it's winter all the time, and it's never Christmas. It's kind of like, you know, here in New York, we've got like 
the curse of winter all the time. But the, the curse is starting to lift a little bit. I've seen some, our, our church mascot. We've got ducks who are, are starting to come around a little bit. But now we have to deal with the allergies this time of year, right? So she issues a curse on the land where it's always winter. And she issues a curse on Mr. Tumnus who's turned to stone. So there's the curse of the billy goat. There's the curse of Narnia. But today, I don't want to talk about those fictional curses. I want to talk about a real curse that all of us have to deal with every single day. And it's described at the very beginning of the book of Genesis, where Adam and Eve were told to not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. They rebel against God, they disobey God, and they are exiled out of the Garden of of Eden. And God tells them that cursed is the ground because of you. And so now the world went from perfection to cursed. Now, you don't need me to explain to you all of the different ways that we live in a cursed land, right? There are famine, and there are wars, and rumors of wars, and there's hurricanes, and there's earthquakes, and there's murder, and there's all of these sinful things that happen because of this cursed land that we live in. Now, you know what the word curse means, right? It means to pronounce evil on someone or something. And we all live in this world which has been cursed or tainted or stained by sin. And the good news, and we celebrate this every week, is that Jesus came to do something about this curse. If you were here with us a couple of weeks ago when we started this series, The Journey to the Cross, before Jesus gets on the actual journey that would lead to the cross, he says to his followers, he says to the crowd that day, If you have any interest in coming after me, I just got to let you know that there are three requirements. You got to deny yourself, you got to take up your cross, and then you can follow me, right? So if you want to follow me, you can come follow me. It's simple, but it is hard because denying ourselves, taking up our crosses, and following Jesus is not always easy. So everybody got it? Yeah, we're, we're with you, Jesus. We want to follow you. He says, all right, come along. So they make their way on the journey to the cross, right? And they start over here. And John O'Neill, if you were here last week, uh, did a great job of talking about the beginnings of his journey on the cross. And you can find that online if you weren't here last week. But Jesus starts on this journey. He comes into Jericho, and he finds Bartimaeus, this blind man. And Jesus called him, right? And John talked about last week the fact that Jesus is calling you. You should follow him. So he meets Bartimaeus, and Bartimaeus gets his eyes opened up. He can see for the first time, and then he begins to follow Jesus on the remainder of the journey. Well, eventually, they get into the city of Jerusalem where the people wave palm branches. This is his triumphal entry into the city of Jerusalem. We will talk about that in a few weeks on Palm Sunday. After he comes into the city of Jerusalem, he goes to the temple courts, and he looks around. And he's not saying anything. He's just kind of meditating, taking it all in. And then he gathers his disciples, and they leave for a city called Bethany, which is about two miles away. They spend the night in Bethany, and then Mark tells us in the 11th chapter, verse 12, the next day, as they were leaving Bethany, Jesus was hungry. So Jesus is hungry, and then he sees in the distance a fig tree in leaf, And he went to find out if it had any fruit. So he sees this fig tree, and there's fig trees all over the place in Israel. Um, He sees it, gets a little bit closer, and when he reached it, he found nothing but leaves because it was not the season 
for figs. And because Jesus was hungry and there was no food, he said to the tree, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard him say it. Now, this is a little bit confusing, isn't it? Like, Jesus, why would you curse a fig tree just because it doesn't have fruit? One commentator, and I don't know where this guy stands with Christ, but he just simply says his honest thoughts. He says, this is a gross injustice on a tree which was guilty of no wrong and had but performed its natural function. Jesus, why would you curse a tree just because it doesn't have any fruit? Years ago, I was meeting with a friend of mine, and he was a self-proclaimed atheist. We started talking about his, you know, his struggles with God and the Bible. And the one passage that he brought up in our conversation was the story of Jesus cursing the fig tree. He's like, I just don't get it. Why would he curse a perfectly innocent fig tree? And at the time, I had no good answer for him. I, I was just like, I'm not sure. Let me do a little bit of research, and, and maybe I'll get back to you. And I never got back to him because I couldn't figure out why exactly Jesus would curse this fig tree. And I'll just be honest with you. Up until this past week, I didn't know why he did this either. And then I listened to a sermon by John MacArthur, and he brilliantly explains this in this way. He said this. When Jesus saw the leaves, he should have expected fruit because fig trees, fruit comes before the leaves. So he should have expected a little bit of fruit. Now, the full harvest never came until August, which would last all the way till October. But at least around March, which is this time frame, he should have expected even just a little bit of figs, which still would have been edible at that moment. And the fact that there are leaves and no fruit means that this tree, there's something wrong with it. All leaves and no fruit leads to Jesus cursing the fig tree which is a precursor to the main event that we're about to get to. Now, we'll come back to the fig tree in a moment. But Jesus, after he curses this fig tree, makes his way toward the temple, which is this glorious, majestic, amazing building in Jerusalem. Now, i got to give you a little bit of an illustration because I grew up about 15 miles outside of the city of Pittsburgh. And hundreds of times, I went through the Fort Pitt Tunnel. Right? And I just want to show you a little bit of a video to show you what it looks like when you go through this miserable tunnel. Let's go ahead and watch it. Okay, so here you are. You're driving, and you're thinking to yourself, oh, my goodness, this thing is going to cave in on me at any moment. Right? Can we please just get out of this tunnel? And then you see light at the end of the tunnel. Again, I've been in this hundreds of times. And then you get through the tunnel and Boom! There is the majestic, beautiful st city of Pittsburgh with buildings, and you got Heinz Field, the home of the Steelers, on your left. And as you can see on the left right there, you can see PNC Park, the home of the Pirates, which have been living under a curse for the last 50 years or so. And then you just make your way, and you're just stuck. Right, right? Hundreds of times I've done this, and every time I am stunned at how beautiful and amazing these buildings are. So here's Jesus with his disciples. And again, they had been in this situation many times because every Jewish boy would travel to Jerusalem a few times a year to celebrate the festival. This time they are in the city for their main holiday, the Feast of Passover. And they're walking and they're just surrounded by a bunch of humble homes. You know, it's kind of like going through that tunnel. And then all of a sudden, boom, they see the grandeur 
of the temple, which had taken 46 years to build. Thousands of slaves it took just to build the foundation of this temple. And they come upon it, and they're like, wow, this is amazing. A little bit about the temple. If you go inside the building, this place right here, it's got two rooms. It's got the holy place, and then it's separated by a curtain. And inside here is the most holy place where the Ark of the Covenant stood. And the high priest would go in this room once a year with the blood of a bull, and he would sprinkle it on the mercy seat of the Ark of the Covenant. And the people's sins would be atoned for an entire year, right? This was a symbol of God's holiness. One piece of ancient Jewish literature, this is not the word of God, but this is a bit of Jewish history. Third Maccabees chapter 2 verse 10 says, and because you love the house of Israel, God, you promised that if tribulation should overtake us, you would listen to our petition. And when we come to this place, this temple and pray that you would listen, there was something different about the temple in the mind of the Jewish people. It was so important to them when it came to their spiritual lives and their relationship with God. It was glorious. It was grand. It was sort of where heaven met earth. And every time you went there, you were in awe because it represented the glory of God. So spiritually, it was important. Also, economically, the temple was important. Um, it, It was likely that the economy of Jerusalem was dependent on the temple. Even though people only went there a few times a year, it was, they could sell merchandise, they could sell sacrificial animals, they could sell all kinds of different things to make money, and the businesses in the city of Jerusalem were completely dependent on the temple. If the temple went out of business, the business in Jerusalem would likely go out of business as well. Let me give you another illustration from one of my, you ever been to State College, Pennsylvania? Anyone ever been there? Okay. So if you were to go there today, drive down, it's about two hours and 15 minutes. You would walk along the streets of College Avenue, and there would probably be some students and some people, but no big deal. It's not very crowded. You could go in the shops. You could go in the restaurants. No big deal. But if you go at State College on game day, where there's Penn State football going on, you can barely move down at State College. You go inside the markets where you're trying to sell merchandise, you know, maybe get yourself like a little, little replica of a stadium or a statue or some posters or bumper stickers. I mean, there are thousands of people. And I don't know this for a fact, I'm just assuming this, that many of the businesses in State College would go out of business if you removed Penn State football, even though there's only like six or seven home games every year. It's the same way with the Jewish temple. If you remove the temple, Jerusalem is economically in trouble. So spiritually, economically, and politically, the temple was everything. The Sadducees and the Pharisees and the religious leaders who guarded the temple wanted to make sure that the Romans would not take it away from them. And so there was always this nervousness, this tension that if somebody comes in and and gets a crowd around them and somebody comes in and gets a bunch of followers, we might lose the temple. So with that in mind, the importance of the temple, Mark goes on and he says this, on reaching Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple area and began to do what? What do you think they began to do? The disciples are probably thinking, well, we're here to pray. 
right? Let's purchase an animal. Let's give it to the priest. Let's have it sacrificed so that our sins can be forgiven. They had no idea what Jesus was about to do. This is one of the most important events during Jesus' week, his last week that he spent prior to the cross. Here's what Mark tells us. He entered the temple and he began driving out those who were buying and selling there. People that were walking around with little models of the temple and posters of the high priest and food and sacrificial animals and bracelets and necklaces and t-shirts and all those different things, Jesus says, get out. And then he overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves. So if you're coming to Jerusalem, you got to take your coins, which probably had the image of Caesar on it, and you needed to trade it in for temple currency. And sometimes they would have markups, right? And you'd trade it in, and then you'd pay your temple tax. Poor people would go in. They couldn't afford a lamb, so they would buy a pigeon. And Jesus sees all of this, and he overturns the tables. And things are, things are getting crazy. And he says, would not allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts. And as he taught them, he said this, is it not written that my house will be called a house of prayer for all the nations? But you, speaking about the religious leaders specifically, but you have made it a den of robbers. Well, the chief priests and the religious leaders heard this and they began looking for a way to kill him, for they feared him because the whole crowd was amazed at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out of the city. Now, he curses the fig tree, which is a precursor to him cursing the temple. You know when he cursed the fig tree, that's the only miracle that Jesus did where he destroyed something? And I would argue that the fact that he didn't get arrested in the temple courts was another miracle. But the people so feared his authority and feared the crowd because he had become so popular that the religious leader said, we need to come up with a different way to arrest Jesus and hopefully hand him over to the Romans. Now, here's the million-dollar question for you, okay? Why did Jesus do this? Why did he come into the temple courts and overturn the tables and let the pigeons free and make such a ruckus? What was the whole point of this? I love the way David Garland, who's uh, one commentator, describes it in a nutshell. The reason that Jesus didn't cleanse the temple but cursed the temple is because the temple had become a safe hiding place where people think that they find forgiveness and fellowship with God no matter how they act on the outside. This enraged Jesus. I mean, at one point, Jesus called the religious leaders whitewashed tombs because on the outside, you look good, but on the inside, you're full of dead men bones. I mean, the temple, it looks like a place where you come and you honor God and you say your prayers, but then you leave the temple courts and you mistreat people and you hurt people and you oppress people. This needs to stop becoming a hiding place where you can do your religious duties and then leave and just think you can act however you want to act. So Jesus doesn't simply cleanse the temple. He curses the temple. 
And then Mark says that in the morning as they went along, they saw the fig tree withered from the roots. And Peter remembered this. And he said to Jesus, Rabbi, look, the fig tree you cursed has withered. Now, Jesus gives the teaching, or he gives the interpretation of the cursing of the fig tree and the cursing of the temple. And here's what he says to the disciples. So if you've been daydreaming for the last 15 minutes, I need you to come back because this is huge, right? Or if you're shopping on Amazon online, just come back here. Here's what Jesus says. This is huge. He says, have faith in God. Stop putting your faith in the temple. I've, I've entitled this message, Jesus in the Temple of Doom, because the temple is doomed. The temple is cursed. You need to put your faith in God, not the temple. You need to put your faith in God, not the nation of Israel, which had been represented by a fig tree. You need to put your faith in God, not your religious practices. You need to put your faith on what's going on on the inside of you, not outward works of righteousness. And then he says this, I tell you the truth. If anyone says to this mountain, go throw yourself into the sea. Now, this, let me be clear here. He's not talking about any old mountain. He's talking about the temple mount, right? Don't drive along the road and, and say when you come to a mountain, oh, man, I got a mountain in front of me. Now I got to go all the way around and I'm going to lose an hour of driving. God, can you please remove the mountain? Or, you know, make a Fort Pitt tunnel right through that mountain. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about the cursed temple mount that has become so corrupt that it needs to be thrown into the sea. And then he says this, and does not doubt in his heart, but believe that what he says will happen, it will be done for him. Therefore, I tell you that whatever you ask for in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. I think Jesus is specifically talking about the temple that's about to be thrown into the sea because it has become so corrupt. And then he says this, and this is maybe the most important part of his teaching. He says, and when you stand praying, if you hold anything against anyone, Forgive him. Forgive him. Jesus is like, I'm tired of your outward acts of religiosity. And I'm tired of the traditions, thinking that you're safe because you come into this place and offer sacrifices and, and do your religious duty and then you leave and it has no impact on your lives. If you think you can come into this place and offer a sacrificial animal and then leave and mistreat your wife or mistreat your husband or mistreat your coworkers or oppress them, you've missed out on my entire message. Matter of fact, at one point, Jesus would say, hey, if you have a little animal and you stand at the altar in the temple and you remember, oh, I got something against my brother. I have actually hurt my brother. You need to take your gift and leave it at the altar and then you need to go make up with your brother or sister whom you've hurt. And you know what's going to happen to your little gift that you put down on the ground? It's going to run away. And then you're going to have to buy a new gift. But he says, I don't care if it's going to cost you money. You got to forgive and you got to be forgiven. 
You say, well, why do I need to forgive? I mean, they hurt me. They deserve to be unforgiven. And again, I don't know your story. I'm just telling you what Jesus said. He said, here's why you need to forgive. So that your Father in heaven may forgive you your sins. And I'm just telling you, if you have unforgiveness in your heart, if there's something that you're holding against somebody and you refuse to show them forgiveness, that is a very, very dangerous place to be. If I could sort of summarize this entire teaching, summarize it in two words, and it's this. Jesus came to issue a brand new covenant. It's a new covenant. Out with the old and in with the new. Jesus did not come to reform the temple. He did not come to cleanse the temple. Jesus did not come to reform Judaism. He came to replace it. He came to do something brand new. He came to replace it. He came to give you a new covenant. This is why Paul says, you're a new creation. The old has gone and the new has come. And it's no longer about temples. It's no longer about mountains. It's no longer about festivals. It's about faith and forgiveness. And you see this happening in John chapter 4 with Jesus' interaction with the Samaritan woman. I've told you before, you should watch The Chosen. You should watch The Chosen. And my favorite scene in this entire miniseries is when he meets with the Samaritan woman. It is so powerful. It brings tears to my eyes every time I watch it. And eventually, you're going to watch The Chosen. And if you're watching online, don't watch it right now. Watch, wait till this sermon is over. But basically, Jesus stands with this Samaritan woman. And this woman gets in this argument with Jesus about like, you Jews think it's about the mountain in Jerusalem, but... We worship on the mountain that our ancestor were. And she starts getting all these conversations about mountains. And Jesus is like, it's not about mountains. It's about worshiping him in spirit and in truth. I have come to do something brand new, which would later on be issued in the upper room, what he would call it, the new covenant. Okay, so Jesus would go on and give some more teachings after he curses the temple. And again, I think it's a miracle that he doesn't get arrested at this point. It just shows you his authority. Next week, we're going to look at specifically one of the teachings that Jesus gave when he was in the temple courts, and it is, it's, it's something else. Don't miss next week. And then he gives another teaching. We're going to talk about that the following week. He does some things that are just mind blowing. And then eventually he leaves the temple courts. Here's how Mark describes it. He says, as Jesus was leaving the temple, one of his disciples said to him, wow, teacher, what massive stones, what magnificent buildings. Wow, this is such a glorious place. And Jesus says to them, see all these great buildings? Not one stone here will be left on another. Every one will be thrown down. In other words, every one of them will be cast into the sea. This is amazing. This is amazing. Forty years after Jesus made this prediction, the Romans led by General Titus and thousands of warriors and soldiers would literally tear 
down the temple and scrape it off the temple mount. September 8th, 70 AD. And you can visit Jerusalem today and you can see that not one stone has been left on the other. And it was devastating to the Jews. It was the Holocaust before there was the Holocaust. The temple was no more. The fig tree was the precursor to the cursed temple. And the temple was gone. There was no more, there was no buildings, these amazing buildings. But you know what? Jesus says, you know what? No big deal. Because I tell you that one greater than the temple is here. Well, finally, the religious leaders, they get one of Jesus' disciples to switch teams. And they ask him, hey, where's Jesus going to be tonight? Because we can't take this stuff about the temple. It's freaking me out. It's terrible. We got to get him. We can't do it during the day because the crowds are too big. So Judas says, I'll tell you where he is. And then they meet with him in Gethsemane. They arrest him. They try him. They mock him. The next day, they hand him over to the Romans where they crucify him. And I have to believe that the religious leaders are looking at Jesus hanging on a cross and maybe, because they're experts in the law, maybe quoting Deuteronomy chapter 21, that anyone who is hung on a tree is under God's curse. We've got Jesus. He's standing around cursing all of us and cursing Israel and cursing the temple. Well, we finally cursed him. And you know what? It's true. That Jesus was cursed. (laughs) That the only righteous, holy, innocent man who has ever lived was cursed for the sins of the world. And then Jesus would breathe his last or he would say, it is finished. It has been accomplished. And the curtain in the temple that separated the holy place from the most holy place was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth shook, and I like to believe that the rocks of the temple split the beginning of the final destruction of the temple in Jerusalem. And here's what's amazing. The apostle Paul, who would come along just a few years later and would take all of this information in, right? This little crash course I gave you on the temple, The Apostle Paul lived at the temple. He knew the law better than anybody. He understood the zealous religious leaders in their ways. And he would step back at one moment moment, and he would summarize all of this. And here's what he would say in Galatians chapter 3. He would say this, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for you and for me. For it is written, Deuteronomy 21, that cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. That is the greatest news that you will ever, ever hear. And C.S. Lewis dramatized this by saying, Mr. Tumnus, who was turned to stone, Aslan, who was killed, would rise from the dead and he would breathe on Mr. Tumnus. And to quote Ezekiel chapter 11, he would take his heart of stone and turn it to a heart of flesh. 
and you are no longer under the curse because Jesus defeated the curse, defeated death, and says, if you follow me, I can turn your heart from stone to flesh. Jesus came to reverse the curse. So I've got a question for you, and then I'm done. And I have two questions. The first question is for those of you who would call yourself a seeker. You'd say, I'm not really sure I've crossed the line of faith yet. Somehow I got invited here and I'm here, or maybe you're watching online. You call yourself a seeker, and I I would say to you, we love seekers. Matter of fact, a, a lot of what we do here, we try to think about how it will come across to a seeker. Like we make sure that there's enough parking lots for every parking lot space for everybody, and we open the door for you, and we give you coffee. We've been switching out coffees, you know, so that so that it's good coffee, and then you come in, you know, and you find a seat, and we try to remove every obstacle in part so that we can offend you, right? We don't want anything to offend you except for the fact that you are under a curse. You're under a real curse. And so my my challenge to you is that you would ask Jesus to reverse your curse. That if you don't know Jesus, if you have not crossed the line of faith, you are still under the curse. That your heart is a heart of stone and Jesus wants to breathe on you and bring you back to life. In just a minute, we're going to close with a song, and I'm going to ask uh, the worship team to come up, and we've got a few people, myself, Lucas, our worship pastor, John O'Neill, one of our volunteers, is going to be available to lead you to Christ if that's what you want to do today. But I also want to say this to those of you who are Jesus followers, that Jesus is not in favor of religious practices and traditions that do not lead to life change. Okay? Okay? In other words, religious practices, coming to church, you know, reading your Bible, watching The Chosen, celebrating festivals and Easter and Good Friday and all those things, Jesus is in favor of that. He was a religious man. He went into Jerusalem because it was part of tradition, because it was their festival. But he is not in favor of practicing religion practicing religious exercises if they do not lead to life change. If you're all leaves and no fruit, cursed. If you're all about religious activity and coming into a place where I feel like, oh, I can, I can connect with God, but it's not going to change the way that I live my life, Jesus curses that. We do these things. We come to church and we pray and we do our devotions so that we can leave this place and love other people and practice forgiveness and lead people to the glorious message that you can be released from the curse. Well, there you have it. I hope that this episode has challenged you and pushed you to really chase after Jesus. And so until we're together again, I simply want to say thank you for joining in on this episode of the Bear Time Road Alliance Church Podcast.